as the summer of 1612 eclipsed in this wild new world. Adrian Block hastened a sunrise exit out of the Narrows before calling for a sharp left turn into the North Atlantic while the rising sun began to dissipate the early morning mists. Yet the two Algonquin brothers remained frozen, their deep brown eyes staring back at their homeland, even though its coastline had disappeared over the horizon an hour ago. And in the bright morning light, the teenagers did their best to intestinally reconcile the unnerving sensation of having nothing but a floating house between themselves and the swelling rolls of the great open sea when their captain, Adrian Block, was suddenly standing beside them, indicating in a modified sign language that they'd be much warmer below deck. And it was only then that the brothers first realized how bitterly cold it can suddenly turn out here in the open ocean. And so, as Block led them down the steep, narrow ladder that took them below the main deck, then toward the rear portion of the ship to a tiny but pulsating kitchen, he called out to the single man inside this cramped, steaming chamber. Good morning, Franz. And a wide, cheery face promptly appeared in the doorway. A big Dutch smile intended to disarm the tension blanketing these special guests. Diplomacy was a top-down methodology in Block's operation, and at only 24 years of age, Cook Franz Janssen had already been around the world more than a few times as his culinary chief, and would prove to be a welcoming and calming presence to these radically displaced native sons. The minuscule space, barely bigger than a handicapped toilet stall, was by far the warmest place on this increasingly drafty ship. Block set the boys on a small bench across from Franz, who was already hard at work preparing the first dish intended to hearken them back to the only culture they'd ever known in their young lives. Those lives that had centered on the very patch of land that just happens to be the current location of the West 14th Street Apple Store today, a native settlement known for centuries as Sapokanakan, and an integral cultural center for the Algonquin people. And the dish that Franz was obsessing over? Steaming pumpkin squash, a vegetable they had known as well as any other in their short run on this earth, particularly as fall sets in. But of course, Franz and this worldly crew had traversed this planet enough to be well-stocked with coveted additives, cinnamon and nutmeg among them, and a touch of allspice, just enough enhancement to make this momentous experience all the more wondrous to these youths from the wilderness of North America. Only a few years older than the brothers, Franz would soon endear himself to these wary chaps, his aromatic assertion and effusive amiability making him perfectly hospitable to these stoic, albeit frightened beings from this new world. Confidently, Block left the boys with Franz, walked away, then paused to look back and consider. Though this was only his second voyage to this increasingly remarkable place, he was already returning home with hard evidence of his unprecedented progress into this potentially priceless market. Ah, yes. His visionary entrepreneur boss, Lambert Van Twainhuysen, would be utterly speechless when presented with these budding Algonquins, Block accurately assured himself. All timber and wampum aside, this world-class Dutch captain was nearly guaranteeing Dutch control over this previously unclaimed market 
by delivering to his employer, along with a staggering trove of Castagraf furs, two invaluable emissaries from this wild and seemingly limitless alien land of opportunity. podcast island the story of how this culture this world this island the place we now know as new york came to be my name is chance kelly and i look forward to you saying wow history is cool episode eight free trade 1613 juan rodriguez all diplomatic prowess aside, nothing could have punctuated Adrian Block's granular examination of this native trade system any more precisely than this exercise of presenting two Algonquin guests to the awestruck powers that be in Amsterdam. And for that very reason, he was meticulously focused on their comfort during this momentous undertaking and why he tasked the unflinchingly friendly Franz as his key liaison in that assignment. Hmm. These brothers. They're similar, but different, Franz thought to himself as he winked at them cheerfully through his observation. One was slightly smaller, but far more tense. His hair was a shade darker, and he seemed to be less willing or able to relax in this strange environment, regardless of how nice Franz was being to them. But his brother, an inch or two taller and who stood a bit more upright in the presence of these strangers, had wider eyes and a more present disposition, a social alertness that seemed to hear and welcome the Dutchman's diplomatic efforts noticeably more than his shorter, tightly wound brother. No human had ever winked at them before. So the shorter one stared back at it guardedly, while his brother returned a hesitant grin while breathing in the steam that radiated from where Franz carefully scooped the fragrant, tenderized vegetable into a large pot of rich porridge, giving it an effective stir, then turning to those massive oysters roasting amidst the embers of his fire encased in a brick basin at his feet. Ah, oh, those succulent shell delicacies up to a foot in diameter, which the boys had themselves been pulling out of the upper bay of Manhattan their entire lives. And finally, Franz reached for the Turkish wheat, or what the boys knew as maize, which we would simply call corn, roasting inside its husks on the other side of his hearth, the veritable staple of these beings' very existence, not just nutritionally, but economically as well. And as the boys passed the time within this culinary clatter, the fragrant reminders of their lives worked as planned, easing their strained minds just enough as their newest comrade Franz stirred solemnly and smiled at them in between his lessons in Dutch. Bishkout. And as his Algonquin students attempted to repeat the Dutch word for biscuit, not very well. Franz chuckled to himself and said, Well, 
It's a good thing we have ten weeks. And the taller one joined Franz in the laugh, as his vastly more cynical brother stared cautiously. And as Franz's mates periodically made their way to the kitchen for their rations of hardtack and brandy, they shared information and ongoing commentary on the brothers. 19-year-old crewman Jakob Elkins took a particular interest in the boys. Something about them just connected for him. And his innate agility with language was not lost on them. And after meeting the boys, Jakob Elkins turned to Franz and he said, You know, that story, Orson and Valentine? (laughs) And Franz chuckled again. Yeah, you're right. I'd say this one is a lot more like Orson. And that one a lot more like Valentine. And Jakob Elkins, barely two years older than the brothers, stepped toward the shorter one. You, mein Vriend. Orson. And you, Valentine. And so the novel celebrity of these brothers was now fully established. And the Algonquin teens would enjoy that status amongst the crew of 15 Dutch sailors for the next several weeks. But as their customized provisions of squash, oysters, and maize began to expire, so did their novelty. So it would have been more than a welcoming sight when land was spotted after about 10 weeks on this increasingly unwelcoming floating house. When the Dutch coast came into sight, the boys would have rejoiced. The end of their travails was in sight. Coming to anchor before Amsterdam, they will have marveled at the multitude of ships lying around, many of them much larger than the vessel they were on. They will have been in awe of the huge buildings built of brick, the roads made of stone, and throngs of people crowding the streets. And these exotic strangers quickly became the talk of the town. Absolutely. Very few Amsterdamers would ever have seen a Native American, and they will have crowded around them to take a peek. They were probably presented to the Amsterdam magistrates, lordly figures in their black cloaks. The entire experience of which would be Manitou to these Algonquins. Too wondrous to explain. And sure enough, Van Twainhuysen was nearly as enthusiastic about these living, breathing Algonquins as he was about the massive trove of pelts that Block delivered to him. And Block's men, always happy to rejoin terra firma, however briefly, each scuttled quickly back to their home turf before their next assignment. And by the time Franz Janssen made it ten miles north to his port village of Monacandam, The excited buzz of this vibrant new market and these Algonquin trade allies had beaten him to his town pub when he stepped in for a brandy with his hometown fellows. And it was then that he saw a face that he had never liked all that much, that of a narrow-eyed and narrow-minded local sea captain by the name of Tice Volkerts Mosel. After working for a man like Adrian Block, Franz knew all too well what types to steer clear of and guys like Mosul were foremost among them. Franz sipped his brandy and did his damnedest to ignore him, but the shifty-eyed seaman beelined straight to him with a great sense of focus in his peering eyes. Vierterog, seaman. Hello, Tice. Your father mentioned you'd gone sailing. West. Yeah. I heard a bit about it from Jacob Patanos and Baron Swears. Sounds like quite a place, young man. And Teich Volkert's Mosul was just one of a swelling legion of souls to think so. 
In fact, those two friends that he mentioned, Baron Swears and Jacob Petenos, just happened to be in the marine insurance business and just happened to have insured Block's previous voyage. So the truth is, the route to the competition that developed after Block's two momentous voyages to this new land was actually a duplicitous insurance agent. And so, among Adrian Block's few faults, trusting people, and sometimes the wrong people, was definitely one of them. And fully aware of this competitive reality, visionary entrepreneur Lambert Van Twainheisen was not going to waste another second because he instructed Block and Christensen to reassemble their crew only a few weeks after they had arrived in Amsterdam, as he would be sending them directly back to this vibrant and increasingly profitable island of Manhattan for a third time. And so, in staggeringly short order, Block and Christensen's ship, the Fortan, was suddenly sailing back to this bountiful wilderness once again. But in spite of the good intentions of Block and his allied Algonquin Sachem awaiting the return of his sons across the Atlantic, the raw cultivation of early trade in this wild and untamed land traveled on a rather uneven course. The thing that nobody anticipates, and that is uh, the spread of epidemic disease. Right. A pervasive and indiscriminate peril of this era was the frequent absence of immunities in the people who traveled from one continent to another. The first vaccination was still two centuries away at this point. So during Bloch's time, no one was immune to this danger. And what had started as a wondrous opportunity for these enterprising young native men soon turned into a nightmare. Not just for Orson, but for this entire community. When Valentine's young life ended, before ever returning home to tell his people about everything he had seen and learned in this wondrous place they call Amsterdam. And all diplomacy aside, the surviving brother would never quite come to terms with this loss. And in truth, one could say that Bloch and the Dutch never did either. Because one crucial Algonquin concept that the Dutch never seemed to be able to collectively wrap their hands around was the animism that these Native Americans knew existed in everything. And within this very mindset, the concept of social reciprocity is far more than just exchanging gifts and transactions in trade. As Professor Otto has explained, it means that they are connected now and forever. You talk about in the book how there was initially a, a fascination of sorts. Like a, the Native Americans were awestruck by the Europeans initially. Yeah. There was a period where they were almost um, more compliant with them, perhaps, because of this uh, fascination in this. It was so new. It was new and it was right, right. fresh and they were intrigued by these visitors, but perhaps even more intrigued 
by the concept of being truly connected to these beings who look, sound, and seem so different who come in their great floating houses, with their seemingly endless supply of metal and cloth goods that make the Algonquins' lives so much better and more spiritually secure. But as we've seen that familiarity can breed contempt, once the Algonquins really get to know these Europeans, there comes a sudden and marked change in the relationship, a shift in the dynamic. The behavior of the Muncies started to change towards these these right, uh, right. early settlers. Yeah. I, I think that transition happens pretty quickly. And it happens quickly because the Algonquins are able to clearly identify how vastly different this new civilization seems to be from them, particularly in their mindset as it relates to this social reciprocity. The importance of exchange, exchange between people, between individuals and animals. And so social exchange continues to guide Native people in the same way economic exchange guides the Dutch. And the social exchange that Professor Otto is really talking about here is simply trust. The exchange implied social cohesion. And it would be the Europeans' inability to understand that particular mindset that would ignite the fuse to this eventual explosion. Even if Adrian Block and Jakob Elkins understood some of it, most of their people understood none of it. Of course, it is worth noting that Jakob Elkins had his own set of motivating factors. Because Jakob Elkins was not like most other up-and-coming Dutchmen. Charles Effenepauze will be right back after the break. The first of eight, Jakob was born out of wedlock before his parents actually got around to their marriage. And therefore, this fallen Catholic would not be able to inherit family capital like each of his other legitimate siblings would which explains Jakob's commercial motivations. He had to be an independent man, an entrepreneur in many senses in order to make his way, but also for a far more deep-rooted reason. He needed to prove himself above and beyond his legitimate siblings or any such young adults coming of age around him. Jakob Elkins had far more to prove than any of them. And because of that, Jakob Elkins had an entrenched need and desire to connect with others. Jakob Elkins was different. He was a man without a real home, without a real family, in spite of his last name. And though he may have been a fallen Catholic, he was hardly a shallow soul. And Jakob Elkins was going to be somebody, one way or another. Yet the dark reality of the death of Valentine could be ignored by some, but not by Orson. And in spite of the ongoing vibrant trade that his own father and Adrian Block were at the center of, he was left asking, what was the meaning of this alliance? if only to seek 
prophet. Yet where was the cohesion? And where was his brother? And it was this painful reality that Orson could never seem to get past. Regardless, by now, Block and his crew were engaged in brisk business with Orson's tribe. Block's third mission to this fruitful island, in six short weeks he was on pace to surpass either of his previous two voyages. Now, as part of their business development, by now Block and Christensen had established a firm rate per beaver fur with the Algonquins, and in spite of the tragedy of Valentine, they were on their way to achieving great commercial and cultural harmony in this triangular trade region. But it would be during the seventh week of Block's tenancy in the Hudson, in the spring of 1613, that the harmony would end and the onrust would begin. And it came when that very narrow-eyed sea captain, Tice Volkert's Mosul, suddenly appeared in the Hudson River, captaining a square-sterned yacht called the Younger Tobias. And as I mentioned earlier, the crowd that Mosul ran with was not exactly the most pious bunch. And these guys just have a different style about them. His supercargo is a guy named Hans Joris Huntum. Yeah. Even his name yeah. sounds bad. Sinister. It, it almost has a sinister ring to it, of course. You kind of know it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Huntum, the Huntum family, I think were involved in the felting trade, the, the father. Felting. Felting of furs. Yeah, in, in uh, Rouen, France. Okay. When we were speaking with Indira, I had mentioned that there was a process whereby the different types of beaver hairs were separated. Now, this specific process was known as felting. And one of the main purposes of this felting was that it produced a very effective waterproof quality. And this felting process would be applied to the manufacturing of any articles of clothing that really needed to be waterproof. And foremost among those articles would be hats. Now, beaver felt is a textile, but it isn't woven. Instead, it is meshed as beaver hair has barbs. So if you mesh it together tightly, it becomes very dense, but also versatile, wind tight, and thus warm. So you first use a fur brush to shave off the short hairs closest to the skin. To bind the shaven hair together, they use the concoction with diluted mercury. Now that is a poisonous substance when you inhale it. And that is where the expression, mad as a hatter, comes from. And the hard truth is, uh, there was probably a good amount of Mad Hatters running around Rouen, France at this time, as that was a major center for this felting trade. You see more and more, more and more people in New Netherland turn up that have some sort of an association with uh, Rouen. That's up in the uh, northern France. And uh, uh, he's, uh, he's a bit of a disagreeable uh, uh, person. Mm hmm. Well. <laughs> I would say that truer words were never written, nor spoken. Because, yes, Hans Joris Huntum was a bit of a disagreeable person. Uh, you, you have to remember the period of time that they grew up in. They grew up in the 80 years war with Spain. A lot of military activity when they were young, 
So you have a group of men who have a very rough background. And uh, Huntum had some issues with uh, with people. Uh, yep. <laughs> issues with people. A lot of issues with a lot of people. That's Hans Joris Huntum. And as supercargo of Marshall's ship, once Huntum learned the rate that Block had established with the Algonquins per fur, he immediately offered to pay the natives double. So, <laughs> there's one issue he's going to have with Block and Christensen. Or more accurately, one issue they're definitely going to have with Hontem. But once again, Block being a businessman, a cerebral guy, a responsible captain with the safety and security of his men at the forefront, as well as his interest in maintaining a semblance of peace here among his Algonquin hosts, who have invested such vast trust and connection in Block by this point. The animism of his actions and the dynamic of this relationship is paramount to the Algonquins at this point. And Block knows it. And Block knows full well who these guys are, Marshall and Hontem. At least, he thinks he does. And he believes that he knows the level of trouble, or onrust, that they could bring. So like the true wartime consigliere that Block was, he cuts a deal with them. They'll share the fur trade. On this trip, anyway. Two-thirds to Block's party, and one-third to Mosul's. Not a great deal. But one that allows Block to profit some, return that profit to his investors, and not devastate his Algonquin hosts and allies. And most importantly, for Block and his men to live to fight another day, which Block and Christensen will do, you can be certain of that. Yet even in spite of this unprecedented diplomacy by Block, Hans Joris Huntum's issues with people prevailed in the Hudson in the spring of 1613, particularly with the people whom he saw as vulnerable, like the Algonquins, and even certain of the men on his own crew. And the particular target of Hans Joris Huntum's untoward ways aboard the Jonga Tobias was a young man who looked very different than the rest of this Dutch crew, and whose name sounded very different too. A man by the name of Juan Rodriguez. Because Juan Rodriguez didn't come from Amsterdam or from Monacandam. He came from the Caribbean island that they were calling Santo Domingo, or La Española, but which we call the Dominican Republic today. All right, wait a minute. D Dutchman on a Dutch yacht from Amsterdam by way of Monacandam. How do we get a crew member suddenly from the Caribbean? In these years, some of the skippers sailing to the Hudson River followed in the wake of Henry Hudson and took the northern way. This was a well-known route by this time. It was an extension of the cut fishery of Newfoundland. But there was also a southern route. 
And now this southern route took them through what they were calling the West Indies, but which we simply call the Caribbean today. Which was warmer and fitted in better with the prevailing currents. Mussel had sailed the first part of this route before. He had been to the Guyana coast first in 1598, and probably a number of times since. It is likely that he had also sailed in the Caribbean, either looking for a salt pan or engaging in smuggling. Hispaniola was a favorite place for some illegal trade, as it was isolated from the regular Spanish trade patterns. And the mad irony of this overall story is never more alive than it is on the island of Santo Domingo in 1613, or La Española, as named by Columbus himself in his 1492 voyage. Because the funny thing about this Spanish one, (laughs) or one of them, was that it really couldn't have been any less Spanish than it was by this point. Because the local population of this place was not Spanish, but largely African, brought here almost entirely by force by the Iberian partners of the Spanish, the Portuguese, who had an ingrained penchant for cultivating that vile trade for centuries. They were really the specialists when it came to trafficking humans in the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries. Now, the other major portion of the local population was made up of the truly indigenous tribes of this island, mainly the Tainos and the Arawaks. These were the people whom Columbus would tag Indians back in 1492. Yes, because he thought he was in India. But as we all know well by now, he wasn't the only one thinking along those lines, was he? But in truth, these were simply the natives of the island that we now call the Dominican Republic. But yes, Columbus had called it La Española, or the Spanish one, because this was the very first of the Spanish colonies in this part of the world. Yet after a full century of failing to secrete the profit originally envisioned for this place by the Spaniards, they started to seek out their silver and gold elsewhere in the area, like in Mexico and Peru. And once they actually found it there, they really stopped paying any significant attention to the Spanish one any longer. Certainly not enough for its oppressed inhabitants to have nearly what they needed in order to move forth as a viable colony, the goods and resources necessary to survive within and run its own autonomous economy. You see, Spain was never really interested in colonizing from the ground up. Not the way the Dutch and the English were, anyway. Uh, Nothing like that. The, The Spanish were really only interested in taking over somewhat established cities And only if they were very rich in natural resources, particularly precious metals and other valuable commodities. So as a result of Spain's disinterest in really colonizing the Spanish one, this place had really devolved into the sort of forgotten welfare state of the Spanish colonial empire. But without the welfare payments from Spain, it had really degenerated into a bastard colony, and its people were left with absolutely no choice but to fend for themselves in order to survive. We're not on the treasure fleet routes. 
We're not getting the supplies we need. The Dutch and the French and the English were all, as part of their orbit, were all supplying hides and so forth and, and, and essential commodities to people and smuggling. But there really wasn't that much the Spaniards could do. And, and the Portuguese also, and the Spanish monarchy system, also it's not their business. So it's kind of a free-for-all. Damas y Caballeros. Our next guest is not just a guy who knows a little bit about what the Spanish were up to at this time, but he also happens to be the co-author of The Worlds of the 17th Century Hudson Valley with our very own Manir Yap Yakup. So I'm extremely excited to introduce our very next historical excavator from the University of New Paltz, Professor Lou Roper. So the Dutch are kind of on the ascendancy. This is after the truce ends. And so the Iberians... I mean, it's it's impossible in the end for the Iberians to maintain the status they had. They had these huge territorial claims. They're colonists in places like Venezuela. They proclaimed they were being neglected. Santo Domingo also, for that matter. And so by the time a young man like Juan Rodriguez comes of age on La Española, the primary career path was that of a stevadore, which is a 17th century version of a Caribbean longshoreman. But on La Española... The stevadores also worked hand-in-hand with the extravagantes, more affectionately known as the Tango Mangos, who were the runners of this now well-established smuggling trade by the time Juan Rodriguez had come along. And the primary partner to these extravagantes in that game was, in fact, one of Spain's primary enemies, the Dutch. The planters who grew tobacco and engaged in, they grew a little bit of cotton and things like that. Basically, they were smugglers. They they invited Dutch, English, and French people, sailors to come in, and they bring in goods, and they traded with them, again, because the Spaniards weren't providing the necessities of life. And then they're transshipping it to other colonies as well. Never ceases to amaze me how crazy this story is, because it would be Spain's own focus on the silver market that would essentially cultivate the Spanish one <laughs> into a thriving economy for its enemies in smuggling with the Dutch and the English primarily. A market driven on the demand side by the extravagantes, guys like Juan Rodriguez, and on the supply side by English and Dutch privateers. Now hold that thought, because we'll be right back. Now, why did guys like Juan Rodriguez want to get off that island so bad? Well, it's, it's not really a place where you're going to be able to make your way in the world. If you're not in this pretty small group of planters and really wealthy merchants who control this place. Right, right. And they have all these connections. They're fighting among themselves. If you're not in that group, you're up against it. You're out. And if you can get off, then you can get involved in this wider scheme. And, and again, people are coming by to take you other places. You can go to Amsterdam. You can go to New Netherlands. You can go to... <laughs> It's pretty easy, actually. So you see, Juan Rodriguez was not only familiar with merchant sailors, privateers, and at times pirates, but in fact, they were actually his livelihood. So Juan Rodriguez striking an agreement with a merchant sea captain like Dutchman Tice Volkert's Mosel is simply the case of a demand-side rep going to work for the supply-side distributor. And now, Juan Rodriguez didn't just bring trade experience with him when he left this island, because in addition to being an extravagante, 
Juan Rodriguez was also part of the local militia that would quite often rise up in rebellion against the Spanish colonizing leadership, the local governing body, such as it was. And this randy, ragtag, but increasingly effective militia of mostly La Española natives, partly or mostly of African descent, became well known as Los Musqueteros because they were quite adept at loading and firing their muskets. So when a guy like Juan Rodriguez cuts a deal with a Dutch captain and climbs aboard his ship, a guy like Hans Joris Huntum would see him as somewhat vulnerable. But old Hans Joris Huntum is in for a bit of a surprise. And so in the four weeks it took the Yonga Tobias to sail from the Caribbean to Manhattan, <laughs> Juan Rodriguez had had quite enough of Hans Joris Huntum. He was a crew member on the ship of Thijs Mossel, and he indicated that he, well, he indicated, he, he was very clear about the fact that he did not want to continue the voyage back to the Netherlands. So, Folks, I told you at the beginning that <laughs> this story is complicated. And our resident expert on Juan Rodriguez himself is not actually Dominican. He's Dutch. Because, as you probably noticed in this story, this overall story, if you happen to know how to translate 17th century long script Dutch, <laughs> you can be one of our historical excavators. Well, that's exactly what this next gentleman is able to do. And that's why he is our next historical excavator, Mr. Tom Vetterings, from his home base in Kulemborg in the Netherlands. Welcome, here. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> You're very welcome. Yes. Uh, he didn't want to go back uh, with the rest of the ship to the Netherlands. So he, he jumped ship, literally. Uh, they gave him some supplies, 80 hatchets, right. uh, a saber and a musket, as they said, uh, in lieu of payment. So instead of him receiving his actual pay, which would have been pretty worthless in any case on the coast of New Netherland at that time, they, they gave him stuff that he could presumably trade or use to hunt or defend himself. And that was that. And he would rather stay on Manhattan Island by himself with only the natives, the native Algonquins here with him, then get back on that ship and go back to the Netherlands with Thijs Volkerts Mosel and, and this horrible Hans Joris Hantum, right? Right. Yeah, it seems very clear that he regretted the deci his decision to get on board by that point. Yes, that's uh... <laughs> right. And he was very happy to say, no, I'll stay here. These Algonquins, they're very nice. And I'll, I'll, I'll set up here. Just give me some. So and it was interesting. They didn't pay him in Dutch currency or gold or silver guilders or anything else, because, as you said, what was he going to do with it? He's he's in the wilderness now living amongst in the wild, but amongst the indigenous peoples who were the Algonquin natives. The only yeah. currency that's worth anything is something that they're willing to trade something else for. And so. Tice Volkerts Mosel, the captain, pays him rightfully his wages, but in the form of 80 hatchets. Yeah. And so yeah. now he's got the goods to set up essentially a small trading post here. And after Mosel and Huntum say good riddance, 
to Juan Rodriguez and blocking Christensen offer him passage to Amsterdam with them, which he also declines. So they sailed away too. And as I've already said, Juan Rodriguez was a hard, capable dude. And so in his own relentless effort to fight tyranny and escape oppression, Dominican Juan Rodriguez, in a fierce illustration of independence, defies and suppresses the oppressive forces all around him. And in doing so, inadvertently (laughs) does something very, very special. Because the very first non-Algonquin resident of this incredible place was not an Italian sailing on behalf of the French, not an Englishman sailing on behalf of the Dutch, and it was not a rogue Walloon sailing on behalf of 12-year-old Queen Christina of Sweden. Because it was, in fact, a young man of African and Spanish descent who came from La Española, or the island that we call the Dominican Republic today, who settled in here in the fall of 1613. And suddenly, Juan Rodriguez had truly become a free man in every sense of the word and had also become the preeminent emissary to Manhattan's developing free trade. And over the next several months, Juan Rodriguez would not only survive, but he, like Orson and Valentine, would learn a foreign culture, its language, and its trading system from the inside out, and progress this free trade forth in a way that no one had ever attempted before. And the harmony that Juan Rodriguez and his Algonquin hosts would enjoy that entire fall and winter would soon disappear in the cloud of unrust when these Dutchmen all return the next spring. And that's when things really heat up, which we can't wait to tell you all about in our very next episode. Dr. Charles T. Gehring and his New Netherland Institute in Albany have been instrumental not just in shepherding this project along, but in the cultivation of the entire study of this lost colony of New Netherland. Charlie, mein vriend, verdankt, meneer. Verdankt. Professor Paul Otto chairs the Departments of History, Sociology, and Politics at George Fox University. His remarkable book, The Dutch Muncie Encounter, The Struggle for Sovereignty in the Hudson Valley, is available from most major booksellers. We enthusiastically thank Dr. Otto for coming on and providing his remarkable knowledge into this incredible era of this wild island of Manhattan. Verdankt. Dr. Lou Roper is a distinguished professor of early American studies at the University of New Paltz. His latest book, Advancing Empire, 
English Interests and Overseas Expansion, 1613-1688, from Cambridge University Press, is available at most major booksellers. Dr. Roper is credited as L.H. Roper on all his books. We greatly thank Dr. Roper for sharing his vast knowledge of this wider colonial world. Vedant. Meneer Tom Vetterings wishes to thank and acknowledge the Dominican Studies Institute at the City University of New York, which was instrumental in his research into this fascinating story of Juan Rodriguez, the first immigrant to this incredible place. Vedant, Tom. Vedant. Island is an original production, researched, written, and produced by Chance Kelly and Dr. Yap Jacobs. Research associate James Mallon, executive producer Alec Baldwin for Cavalry Audio and iHeartRadio. Our 17th century Dutch musical arrangements are courtesy of Camerata Triactina. And I am your host, Chance Kelly, thanking you for boarding our voyage of discovery en route to saying, wow, history is cool. We'll see you next time.